0: Hello and welcome to this special two-part podcast from Faber, featuring an interview I recorded in May with Kazuo Ishiguro to mark the publication of Nocturnes, his first collection of short stories. That book is the subject of this first part, and in the second, I talk to Ishiguro about his career to date, the place of Japan in his earlier books, the effects of success, and the challenges that lie ahead. We begin, though, with Nocturnes, a collection of five longish short stories with related themes of music and night ambition and disappointment in our conversation, we talked about the challenges of writing in an unfamiliar form and also how he approached writing comedy. I began though by suggesting that the many musicians in the book worried about their audience, their success, their status could be viewed as a metaphor for the writer
1: yes, I guess that's fair enough I mean it but In many ways, I was going in the opposite direction. When, when I, when I take a musician or in, in previous books, you know, I've taken artists or, you know, other people like that. I'm not really trying to create a metaphor for the writer. I'm really trying to, to create metaphors for, for just ordinary work and how people try and create an identity for themselves and how, how people try to make something um, meaningful and worthwhile out of their lives and and the and the work that they do, and so in in a sense, uh, I think um, the musicians in this book, I, I I never really thought of them very much as, as as standing for the author and his audience or her audience. It's it, for me, it's it's um, they're they're everyman figures a lot of the time, particularly these musicians who haven't quite made it and a lot of the people in this book they they're musicians who didn't quite fulfill their dreams or perhaps they're still young enough to think that their uh, their dreams will be fulfilled one day but the you know, time is moving on it's often people like that i've i've chosen and i i I'm, I'm trying to to portray ordinary lives you know when do you let go of your dreams when do you try and hold on to them what do you sacrifice in your endeavor to fulfill these dreams, when are you just deluded, and when are you being courageous and authentic to yourself?
0: It, it's certainly true that that um, that music is de romanticized in the stories. It's, you know, it seemed to me you were not so interested in describing music as looking at how music is a profession, a vocation, or a, you know, at worst, just a just a job that people. Are drawn to or fall into.
1: That is true. Uh, well, at least that's 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 often how how music ends up for these people. It, they, it ends up as a as a job, but it's not just any job. In that, it's, it's a kind of. Well, you use the word vocation there. I mean, it's 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 something that people have have gone into because there is a there is a part of themselves that really believes in it. You know, that they, they they feel the music expresses something inside of them that cannot be expressed any other way, that that somehow they represent themselves in the world better if they can represent themselves through music. And so I think it's very closely bound up with uh, people's identity, their their vision of themselves, who they are. And so when the world doesn't allow you to to fulfill your career as a musician in quite the way you, you wish that that is a challenge to your very view of who you are or who you might be so in that sense looking at musicians it tends to be perhaps uh, sometimes it can be more fruitful than looking at people in other jobs but i think you can you can do this in you know, you can look at people in in any kind of area of human endeavor and i think um, you will find you will find something very fascinating about People trying to fulfil a certain thing. You know, um, I think I chose music for, for because uh, because um, looking at musicians gave me a a chance to, to look at how people struggle with personal dreams. But I think there were other reasons why I wanted the stories in Nocturnes to be bound by music. It wasn't simply music or musicians as metaphor. In a sense, I wanted, and this, this sounds slightly Pretentious, but I, you know, I I wanted to to write stories that had something of the quality of of these bittersweet jazz songs, and that that really was a starting point. W- wouldn't it be nice to um, write a song that perhaps not only maybe had something of the plot line that you know, of some of these um, old Broadway songs, like one for my baby, one for the road. You know? but actually had some of those qualities, so the, the atmosphere, it's the bittersweet melancholy, the, but that also that kind of rather enduring stoicism that you find in those kind of, you know, the, the great American songbook songs of, um, of you know, people like uh, Harold Arlen and Gershwin and Porter and Lawrence and Hart. And so I was trying to evoke that kind of atmosphere. And so particularly in a couple of the stories, I, I, that's what I was going for
0: you knew from the start presumably that you wanted this to be quite a tightly woven collection of stories there are five pieces in it and you've got recurring themes as you've said and even recurring uh, a recurring character so you knew it wasn't just going to be an accumulation of of pieces which were loosely based around music from the start
1: well to put it very simply i mean i i sat down and wrote the five stories one after the other uh, in fact in, in a way i i, was, I wrote them simultaneously yeah, you know, I, I have a big folder at home where the notes, there, there are notes for each story. And so the, the stories are being kind of developed together. And then, of course, when I physically kind of wrote the drafts, I had to do them in some order. But uh, uh, it was very much conceived um, like, um, like, like a book, you know, like a single book. And the odd thing for me was that it wasn't so different from writing a novel. What you might call proper short story writers might, might you know, raise an eyebrow. At, at this, because in, in a way, I am I am a novelist m- moonlighting in a in a different uh, form. But I've gone about this rather in the way the novelist would. I've thought of it as a whole book, and actually, I'm used to the idea that there are two or three different narrative strands in a novel. Typically, with a kind of a 250-300 page novel, there's usually you know, a two and a half <laughs> kind of narrative strands that that intertwine. And one of the challenges is to is to make these different narrative strands intertwine in a meaningful way, that they're not just sitting there side by side and and jarring. Uh, there has to be an artistic reason why they're there. You know, it, it should be more than a sum of their parts. And so that's a challenge that that was oddly familiar from from writing novels. Once I wrote a very very much longer novel that that was you know, well over five hundred pages and. And it struck me that the difference between a shorter novel and a longer novel was, was that you know, instead of uh, two narr- narrative strands, you, you often had, you know, you had five or six you know, discrete narrative strands. And so, in a sense, it wasn't so much of a jump to write a book that I knew from the start would be five discrete stories. It's just that I didn't have to face the problem of weaving these stories together, but... But when you think about it, many many books that are considered to be novels are are actually made up of almost discrete stories. I mean, Anna Karenina is a very good example; It's two completely separate novels in the sense. And you know, more recently, we've we've had various books like Train Spotting or David Mitchell's books, Cloud Atlas and um, Ghost Written. And and then there there have been short story cycles. You know, like Joyce's uh, Dubliners and so on and the book that as we speak and 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 this is the spring of 2009 um and people are very excited about internationally is Roberto Bolaño's 2666 which is a massive you know nearly a thousand pages but actually it's five novels that kind of link up and so you know i, I think that when you start to look at it the, the the border between novels and and a book of short stories if if the short stories are conceived to go together. I, I think it's a, it's a much more blurred one than, than you would think. And this is one of the things I, I discovered as I was working on these. that I used to think the short story is a completely different form. Uh, now I'm not so sure.
0: Will you be taking back things you've discovered from writing this book when you n- embark on, maybe you've already embarked on, on a novel, or do books tend to grow more organically than that? from your imagination you talked about weaving together strands so do the strands sometimes only later in the process begin to suggest how they may coalesce into a, a novel
1: well it's a little early for me to say you know if, if I will take what I will take from the experience of having written a book that's made up of five kind of longish short stories you know, that, in fact, that, that's the other thing that they're, they're a bit longer than your, your average short story some of them are 50 pages long so but I think um in a sense it i was i was thinking about this myself the other day in a sense it, it it might encourage me to write the longer kind of novel because i i can it's almost like i've done a little rehearsal for it in miniature by having a having a a short shortish book with you know five discrete stories in it well you know i i could i could have a i can see now that the 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 model for how you how you write one of these kind of 500 600 page books it's basically a kind of uh, it's all to do with the relationship between the uh, the the two three or four stories that that you're going to put put in there you have to always ask you why are they together and why are they relating to to each other in the way that they are I must say I do often wonder about that in respect of um, Anna Karenina I'm not quite sure why (laughs) Levin's story and Anna's story are are deemed to belong together to that extent um, but there they are you know we always we got used to them being together and sometimes that's interesting as well I mean to actually not not have an obvious uh, link and I, I have I, I have read some novels like that where there isn't an obvious link between some of the narrative strands and and the, the fact that there's a gap is quite interesting mm-hmm. But, but I, I, I did find it an interesting experience. I, I have to say, I, I don't regard myself as a proper short story writer. You know, I, I, I didn't really think very carefully about the form of the short story. It, it, it's really like, um, it's another, another way of writing a, a, a novel, I suppose.
0: L- let me ask you about writing comedy, because one story, although come rain or come shine, although it deals with disillusionment, and what happens, you know, and, and and the possibility of relationships breaking down, there are also quite farcical elements in that story. How, how did you sort of approach that? Did that did that sort of come naturally um, from the from the material itself?
1: Well, because I was writing a book that had five discrete stories, it was very clear to me that you know that you could switch the mood quite quite drastically, and in a sense, you wanted. Um, a kind of uh, variegation of moods you know you you didn't want every story to to hit the same note and so in a way you're pushed to to write stories that contrast to some extent so you know I I started with a rather melancholy story and then I wanted a funny story and I felt very much that at, at least you know two of the stories should be humorous it's 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 a bit like a, well, I, I know these analogies are terribly tiresome and pretentious, but it's, it's a bit like doing an album. You know, uh, I'm a, I'm of the pre-downloading generation that thought of music very very much in terms of albums, and and of course you know you you, you mix the up-tempo number with the with the ballad and so on, and the the catchy number with the long kinda of more challenging track and and so on. So uh, my instinct was to was to mix. The, 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 the moods of the story so I, I I did set out to write a couple of comic stories and that one you mentioned Come Rain or Come Shine was very much conceived of from the start as as the as the funny story if you like but um, I I like um, personally I like I like kind of funny and sad at the same time and often, often in like straightforward stage farce there is of course you know desperate tragedy you know, the best ones do have a sense of, kind of desperate tragedy kind of Wedding up behind the kind of the uh, the humor, but also people like Woody Allen at his best in the seventies and eighties, I think, managed to combine that hu- that humor and pathos. Um, Chaplin did as well, um, and I, I I do like that when you're not quite sure whether you should be laughing or crying, maybe you should be doing both at the same time. So, I was trying to go for that, and how I went about it. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's it's in a way. I mean, comedy is comedy. You know, it's very hard to put apart how you <laughs> how you do comedy i do think comedy is um is risky because i think um more than anything else i've discovered that people's tastes differ enormously and it's not just cultural either you know in the same milieu in the same same community um you know some people just don't find some things funny and other people find them hilarious and uh, i've tried to write comedy before and um Sometimes people haven't noticed. <laughs> 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 I mean, for me, The Remains of the Day was supposed to be a comic novel. I mean, there's supposed to be many passages of, of kind of slapstick comedy, and the general stance of the narrator was supposed to be comic. It was supposed to be ironic and comic. Uh, a lot of people don't seem to see that. I mean, and um, I wrote I wrote a more kind of surreal book, The Unconsoled. And a lot of the time I was going for comedy in that. It, Granted, that's a more kind of surrealistic kind of comedy, and there are people who come up to me and say they find it very funny, and other people who say, "Well, you know, it's, it's utterly bleak, and there isn't a single note of humour in it." Mm. So I've learned that it's it's always risky. You should never assume that something I find funny and, and that my wife finds funny <laughs> would necessarily strike other people as funny.
0: Well, the other the other moment of humour that sticks in my mind from from Nocturnes, which I suppose also has its pathos, but it is, is richly absurd is uh, in Nocturne, the story where an aging celebrity and a tenor sax player who is having, pl- both of whom have had plastic surgery, are roaming around a hotel at night with bandaged faces. And they end up stuffing a jazz award inside the cavity of a turkey in the hotel, in a hotel function room, <laughs> and I wondered. You, you may say again, I'm being sort of over metaphorical, but if this was you saying something about, you know, celebrity culture and award ceremonies, is that, is that, is that also reading <laughs> too much into it?
1: <laughs> well, it's not. It's not inappropriate, you know. I, you know, because we all, uh, particularly in, in this takes place in Hollywood, this story, and you know, the, the word turkey actually means something. In, term, in terms of, uh, you know, or kind of like crashing failures, you know, um, for film is a turkey or something a turkey. Well, I wasn't. I, wa- I won't want to overemphasize the symbolism there. I mean, the the, the, the situation just develops where that becomes a, a logical and normal, uh, a fairly rational kind of thing to be doing at that point in the story. I suppose part of the thing of comedy is that uh, you, you take the reader step by step, and each step seems perfectly rational and sensible it's only when after the accumulation of steps uh, have taken place and, and you suddenly get a perspective on it that, that you realize you've ended up somewhere ridiculous and that that's I suppose a comedy in in nocturnes often goes like that and you're right I mean I, I was concerned about celebrity culture I, I wasn't wanting to make any huge definitive statements about it but this this need to to be a celebrity, or perhaps you know, to be seen to be succeeding in some kind of big public world, is a pressure all these characters feel to some extent, even the ones who aren't musicians. And it's just there. And a lot of the more drastic decisions people make, um, they make because they're under that pressure. They make very distorted decisions. Um, and, and and it is one of the things that interests me. I have to say, you know, when I was trying to figure out what world these stories should take place in because I wanted them to take place in the same more or less the same kind of setting in terms of time. I thought well perhaps it, you know, all the stories will fall in that period somewhere after the fall of um, the Berlin Wall but before 9-11 that, that space between 1989 and 2001 a time of perhaps you know, complacency and where people thought we could afford to be apolitical and ahistorical and perhaps yes, that the seeds of kind of, kind of a, a very intense celebrity culture started to started to set in, which we, we're still living with to some extent. But I think big events in the world are making us see that you know we have other things to worry about now. But that, that did fascinate me because it said something about once again about how people think of themselves as failures or successes, and how when people tell themselves that they fulfilled some dream and they should be satisfied and, and when they say to themselves "Oh no it's not enough yet you know i have to keep on going there's something about the um about the modern world that we live in and i think we're still living it now um that makes it very hard for people to settle for for what they have um we're bombarded with um possibilities all the time um that's partly because of good things. You know, I think society has opened out both geographically and, and in terms of social mobility compared to, say, 100 years ago. But it does mean that we're everyone is kept hungry. You know, why, why haven't you? Why don't you take a course and improve yourself and, um, and become something else altogether? You know, why don't you just leave this person you've, you've been married to and, and trade up? And I mean that that feeling that you know you shouldn't be satisfied with where you are—it's it's this kind of nagging feeling that uh, I see a lot of people succumbing to,
0: and the sense that it's within your power to change it, and in, in a way it's sort of incumbent upon you to change it. Like the the, the jazz musician who is thirty nine is still potentially up and coming, but this is really his last chance, and he does it by this sort of grotesque method of of plastic surgery in order to break through.
1: Yes, well, in that particular case, he, he's pushed into it. I mean, he doesn't want to do this, you know, but the, the, the pressures of, of the world all around him, his, his wife who's leaving him, his manager, everyone says, look, I mean, you know, it's almost like a, a, mo- a moral imperative. You're not really making enough of yourself unless you give it a proper go. And that means, you know, get your face better because you're not going to be a success in this, in this glamorous world. In the show business, you know, unless you, you're less ugly, and so he finally gives in, and, and that's what he's doing. Yeah. And at another, in another story, that there's a a once successful singer who, because he's getting old, I mean, he he feels he needs to make a comeback, and he needs to, to some extent, ditch his, ditch the wife he still loves, because he has to he has to. Along with a comeback goes a whole whole lot of new things, mm-hmm. you know, a new image, a younger wife, and so on. It's not a book that's kind of necessarily going out and out to criticise the values by which we live. But, the, I mean, the, the, but those values are very much there in that world, and, and people, people have to, to measure their sense of success and failure according to those prevalent values.
0: Let me, let me ask you a final question about Nocturnes, about this story, The Cellists, which is the one that, for me personally, has resonated most in my mind since I read the book. And it focuses on this question of potential and talent and you've got a young musician full of promise and you've got his teacher and the relationship between them is fascinating because this issue of of potential and talent is absolutely central to to what the story is about
1: well i don't want to give too much away about the story but essentially it's it's about um probably someone who <laughs> who suffers to some extent from, from from arrested development what you might call arrested development to I me mean, she's um uh, to some extent she she's got too attached to that point in her life when she had enormous potential and the world seemed to be at her feet at least so she believed in, in her case in, in, in the career of music and she was afraid to, to go any further because of course going any further means that you find out can do you realise the potential or not and there is something um, very tempting about just remaining in that zone of People saying, well, yes, I mean, you're so good that you know, one day when you really go out there, you know, you're just going to do everything. And it seems to me it is very scary. And and most of us have had that experience, well, even if we're not involved in artistic endeavour. I mean, there's, there's a certain point when we stop thinking of ourselves as as kind of young people with potential. We start to have to measure ourselves by what we've done and what we're doing. Whether it's in terms of career, whether whether it's in term of terms of friendship or love, or and and here is someone who perhaps um, you know is afraid to take that step, and the years have gone by. So it's a study of of somebody like that, and it and the story too. Probably, I'm also trying to raise this question: What exactly is talent? You know, is is it something? Is it something innate that? people have so that even if you don't actually realize it you can still say you're a talented person i just haven't actually done anything with my talent that's why you know, can someone actually say i'm a great cellist i just haven't learned the cello yet but you know that 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 is in me you know <laughs> and i've got i have a right to say i'm somehow superior to to your run-of-the-mill cellist because um i, I i'm a you know i have a special gift but i just haven't got round to a uh, learning the instrument and practising yet. I mean, does that make any sense at all? I mean, that, that that's an interesting question for me.
0: I was talking to Kazuo Ishiguro about his latest book, Nocturnes, Five Stories of Music and Nightfall. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do check out part two of our conversation in which we talk about Ishiguro's earlier books. And at faber.co.uk, you'll also find the author reading extracts from some of the short stories in the book. Meanwhile, thank you for listening and goodbye.